bless everyone. Amen. Um, a couple things before we get started, a little, uh, little like uh, housekeeping stuff. Um, after the, the lesson, there's going to be like a closing prayer and a uh, uh, and then a closing song. So it's a little different than what we are, we're used to. Um, you shouldn't take that to mean that the sermon's going to be shorter. Um, but, uh, but anyway, one other thing. Uh, Hannah is getting baptized today. Is Hannah here? Somebody, somebody make Hannah stand up and embarrass her a little bit. That's going to be at 4.30 p.m. at the Hutchins house. Um, so, so today the, the, the leaders, the staff, the elders, the deacons, they're off at their, they do this annual retreat. So we're left here uh, to our own devices. We're going to continue studying out the book of John. So if you'd like to turn to chapter 11, um, we'll be uh, looking at verses 45 and uh, uh, 45 through 57. And if you'd like to maybe get a little ahead of the game... We'll be bouncing over to 2 Chronicles 13 as well. So if you want to kind of mark yourself up there so you can get there quickly when you need to. Um, this passage that we're going to look at today in 1145 through 57, it, it's, it's kind of like the middle marker. It's like the dividing line in the book of John. Um, if you look at the first half of John, you see us, we're, we're getting to know Jesus. He's, he's kind of revealing himself. He's talking to large crowds. He's doing miracles. He's, he's very public. He's mixing things up. He's arguing with the Pharisees and, 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 and whatnot. But from this point on in the book of John, starting in chapter 12 till the end, we see a, very, a much more private Jesus. We see him with much smaller groups. We see a lot of time spent teaching his apostles what, what is to come and what that means and how they're to live. And, and here we are in this dividing line, what we're going to read today. And it's, it's, it's a little challenging because Jesus isn't even in the passage that we're going to read. It's, there's a little bit of narration about him, but we don't hear his words. We don't see him doing things. And it's, it's kind of underwhelming if you're only looking at the surface of it. And if you're trying to preach it, it's, it's even more challenging. But as you look at it, and, as, and hopefully what we'll see today is that this is, this is a very important crossover space in this gospel. This is, it's like a toll gate into the, into the second half. And, and, and it calls us to make some very uh, challenging decisions about who Jesus is to us and what we're going to do about it. Right? So let's just read in verse 45. Give me a second to get there. <laughs> um, in verse 45, it says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. And what it means by what he did, it's referring to raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, this is the culmination of his public ministry in the book of John. He raised a man from the tomb who had been in there for four days. Right. That's 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 no parlor trick. That's a big deal. Right. And in verse 46, it says, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. If you're looking at any other translation, the word temple, it doesn't say temple, it says place. 
I think they're both reasonably good translations. But when you hear temple in this context, it's not just the building itself, but more so the whole temple system, right, that the priests were so enmeshed in that we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. In verse 49, it goes on. It says, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees who had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Amen. And we see in this passage these these differing reactions to these amazing things that Jesus has done. This raising a man from the dead who had been in a tomb for four days is intense, right? That's powerful. You, you, don't, you, don't just, you don't just do stuff like that. And many people believe, but it, but it says that the Pharisees, when they found out about it, they went to the, to the chief priests and they called together the Sanhedrin. And we've talked about the Sanhedrin. It's this ruling body and Ed, Ed has little cool slides to show how they sat. And it's really you know, interesting. But you know, it, it's, it's this ruling body dominated by these chief priests, right? And the chief priests, centered around or, or, or revolved around this single family, a very corrupt family, the family of Annas. Annas himself had been high priest, but he had been deposed by the Romans. And now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is high priest. And, and they're, they're priests, but these are not the priests of, 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 of Aaron, right? They're, they're not in his spirit. They are, they are corrupt. They are they're obsessed with wealth. They're obsessed with power. They're willing to exploit their own people. They connive and conspire with the Romans. And, and, and their reaction to Jesus in this passage is one of anxiety and worry and confusion. They're saying, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're, we're having no success quieting this man. And, it, and, if, and if, it, if, if we don't do something, the Romans are going to come and take away our temple or our place and our nation. Right? And they, were, they were very worried about the fact that their job as the, the priests working for the Romans, they were supposed to keep people quiet. They were supposed to keep peace in Israel. The Romans were very interested in keeping order and peace. And it was the priest's job to make sure that these rabble-rousing, stiff-necked Jews didn't cause any trouble. And our passage says that the Passover is on its way, right? And that was a time of intense zeal on the part of the Jewish people. The Passover was the celebration of their uh, exodus out of Egypt. God rescued them, made them into a nation. There was a lot of nationalistic fervor and pride. And it was already somewhat of a 
powder keg in Jerusalem. And the Romans were already worried. And then add to it this Jesus. This Jesus. He's saying these crazy things. He's doing these amazing things. And I think it's interesting that our passage doesn't say that the chief priests in the Sanhedrin did not believe that he was legit. In other places in the Gospel of John, they kind of argue against him and they try to discredit him. But this guy just raised a man out of a tomb after he'd been in there four days. There were witnesses. This is a big deal. It doesn't say that they didn't believe that he was legit. He was just threatening to them. He was threatening to their temple, to their place, to this temple system that they were making a living off of. Right? He was disruptive and, and he worried them. Right? And it says that Caiaphas, who was the high priest, he says, you know, we, we're going to have this one man die for the nation so that the nation doesn't have to perish. And John points out to us that, that he's an unwitting prophet at that point. Right? Yeah, you're going to kill Jesus, but it's not going to accomplish what you thought it was going to accomplish. Your temple is going to, the temple was destroyed some decades after this. Right? The temp, he didn't save the temple. The nation of Israel would never return to the glory that it had under David. It wasn't going to work out like he thought. It was going to work out for something far greater. John says that it's going to gather all of God's people into one. You know, God is a, is a gathering God. Jesus was gathering in John 10, the good shepherd passage. There's sheep out there from other folds, and I'm going to bring them into this flock. That's what Jesus is all about. These priests, these Pharisees, these officials, these religious leaders, they were scatterers. They oppressed the people. They threw them out of the synagogue. They, they were more interested in their power than in anything else. And, and in this anxiety that, that resulted from the obsession about their temple system and the threat that Jesus posed to it led them to conspire to commit murder. We're going to kill somebody to protect our place. We're going to kill somebody to protect our temple, our nation, our kingdom. And our, our, the, the, the title of the lesson today is Passover, Place, and a Little Town Called Ephraim. You know, we'll start by talking about the Passover. You know, the Passover was this incredible time of remembering God. If you, if you read through the Old Testament passages on how to celebrate the Passover, there's this call to remember. Remember that I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. He brought, brought, the, brought the Israelites out of Egypt, made them into a nation... Yahweh, the God of Israel, defeated the gods of Egypt in the Exodus. You make no mistake that these ten plagues that we read about in the book of Exodus were an affront to the Egyptian gods. The Egyptians worshipped the sun. There's a sun god called Ra. God made the sun go dark. What, a, what an affront to the god of Egypt. They worshipped the Nile. The Nile made it possible to live in Egypt. It's a desert Region The Nile provided water. It would overflow its banks periodically, making the soil fertile. They worshipped the God of the Nile, the God of the flood. God turned it to blood. So much for your God. You know, they worshipped Osiris, the God of agriculture. They believed that Osiris taught their ancestors to grow grain. God sent locusts to eat their grain. God shut down the gods of Egypt. He brought these destructive plagues. And I think it's so interesting. The, the, the writers of the New Testament, the, the writers of the Gospels, make very clear parallels that they don't want us to miss between the Passover and Jesus, between the exodus out of Egypt and the, and the, the release from slavery to the Egyptians to our own release from sin and death. God brought these 
destructive plagues on the Egyptians. And Jesus in the book of John is bringing life-giving signs. You know, God turned water to blood. Jesus turned water to wine. God brought death to the firstborn of Egypt. Jesus raises people from the dead. There's this clear parallel that's going on in the Gospels. And, and that's why we have so much emphasis placed on the Passover in, in, in the Gospels, paralleling it to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and God defeated Pharaoh and Egypt to bring his people out of slavery. And, and he called them into the desert and he starts teaching them how to live. Right? We, see, we see throughout the, the, the Torah, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, this is how I want you to live. And we tend to think about these as, as like a system of rules. But really it's God saying, you're not going to be anything like the Egyptians. I've called you out of Egypt. Egypt was a place of oppression. It was a place of slavery. It was a place of murder. It was a place of uh, wealth and military might. Those are the things that Pharaoh counted on, and it made him anxious. It made him confused. If you read in, the, in Exodus 1, he was anxious over the fact that the Israelites were growing out of control, and he said, I'll enslave them, and that will control their population. And when that didn't work, he said, well, I'll just start throwing their sons into the Nile. I'll start killing. That's the nation of Egypt. And God did not want his people to be anything like the nation of Egypt. You're going to live differently. You're going to look out for one another. You're not going to exploit one another. You're not going to lie to one another. You're not going to murder one another. You're not going to uh, commit adultery and affront to one another. You're going to look out for the poor. You're going to look out for the aliens. You're going to be generous. It's nothing like Egypt. You are to be nothing like Egypt. He called them to be different. And he even told them in Deuteronomy 17, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. It's not so much that he didn't want them to go back to the, you know, the, the northern African country of Egypt. He just did not want them to become like Egypt. You're going to be different. You're not going to be like the nations. But if we know anything about the history of Israel, they did indeed go back to Egypt in their hearts. They never stopped believing in Yahweh. When you look at the Old Testament and you see the different things that, that the people of Israel got into, their sin, their idolatry, it never said that they stopped believing in Yahweh. It just says they stopped trusting. They stopped trusting. They didn't do what he did. He taught them to live differently, to not be like the nations, but they started living like the nations. In 1 Samuel, they say, give us a king. We want to be a king like the other nations, like Egypt. We want to be like them. In in First uh, Kings ten, Solomon specifically goes to Egypt to get horses. <laughs> exactly what Deuteronomy said not to do. They become a kingdom of the world. They become a kingdom of wealth. They become a kingdom of military might, exploitation, slavery, murder. They become just like Egypt. They go back. And now here we have these chief priests in the book of John, focused on worldliness. Focused on wealth, focused on power, and willing to commit murder to protect their temple. They're not trusting God and walking in his ways. They're acting just like Pharaoh, willing to commit murder to protect their worldly kingdom, not live in God's kingdom. 
And they're, and they're, all, they're all bent out of shape over this temple that they're so in love with. And, and the temple that we're talking about here would be referred to as the second temple. The first temple was re- destroyed by the Babylonians. The Jews came back and restored the temple. But the interesting thing about this idea of temple is temple was supposed to be the house of God. Originally, there was a tabernacle, tabernacle built right in, in Exodus. They were desert people. They roamed around. They couldn't build a temple. God had them build a tabernacle. If you read the book of Exodus, it, it's very detailed and boring about how he wants you to build the tabernacle. Boring, perhaps, like this lesson is so far, but it's going to get good. Bear with me. But when the, when, the, when the tabernacle was erected in Exodus 40, it says that the cloud descended upon it, the cloud that had been leading them, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. A cloud descended on the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled it in such a way that Moses couldn't enter it. There was something palpable, something real, something Amazing about this glory of God. And then later in, in, in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon builds the temple and they dedicate it and the ark comes in, the same thing happens. The cloud descends on the temple and the glory of the Lord fills it so much so that the priests cannot enter to do their jobs for a time. It's that real. It's that intense. The glory of God. But then later, as we've already kind of touched on, that Israel becomes just another nation of the world. They, 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 they fall into sin, idolatry, oppression. And, and in Ezekiel, right around the time that the Babylonians are about to come in and destroy the temple, the first temple, Solomon's temple. Ezekiel 10, has, there's this amazing vision that I encourage you to read. You know, Ezekiel saw some stuff. Right? You know, Ezekiel saw some things. But there's this amazing imagery That he uses to describe the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. The glory of the Lord leaves the temple. He's no longer among the Israelites. It's amazing. And of course, historically, we know that the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple, took the Israelites into slavery. In God's mercy, or or, or rather exile is maybe a more appropriate word, but in God's mercy, he released the Israelites. They went back to Judah And they rebuilt the temple, which is the temple we see today in John, the second temple. But I can't find anywhere in the Bible, or on Google for that matter, (laughs) that the glory of the Lord ever came to the second temple. There's There's no description of the glory of the Lord filling the second temple. This temple and this temple system... In its corruption was an empty temple. It had it did not have the glory of God in it. Of course, the glory of God had indeed returned, but just not in the way that they had expected. If you look at John chapter one, you don't have to turn there, but in verse 14 of John chapter one, John says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And, and, and the actual language there means he built a tabernacle among us. He tabernacled with us. He camped out. And he goes on to say, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and of truth. The glory had returned, but it just did not return to their temple. The glory of the Lord was not interested in their system. And yet, they were more worried about losing this empty temple than they were about making peace 
with the glory of the Lord that was standing right before them, performing miracles and expounding on the law of God and teaching them how to walk in the kingdom of God. They were more interested in the temple. Why? Because it was theirs. It was their temple. Yeah, there's the glory of God, but what about my glory? This temple may be empty, but it's mine. It's ours. They were, they, were, they were bent on protecting it. Their hope was in a worldly system. Their hope was in a worldly kingdom. They were so much more like Pharaoh than they would ever be like Aaron, you know, who was the man they were supposed to be following as priests. And I can imagine them thinking to themselves, why can't this Jesus just be a little more tame? He's obviously legit with the things he says and the things that he does. But why can't he be a little less demanding, a little less provocative, a little less compelling? He's threatening our system. Why doesn't he help us? He'd be a good addition to the Sanhedrin. He could could help us. He could help increase our glory. He could help protect our place. Why can't he just let us have our place? And this is where we find ourselves, church. You know, we, we believe, there's probably no atheists in here today. If there are, welcome. I find sometimes atheists are a lot closer to the kingdom of God than religious people. But most of us are probably believers. We've had some sort of an event in our life that, that, that we call ourselves believers. And we don't, we don't, we don't think that God doesn't exist. We just don't trust him. We just don't trust him to walk in his way. These things that he says, give your stuff away. Forgive your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Put yourself lower than others. Consider other people's interests higher than yourselves. You got to trust to walk like that. That's threatening. That's threatening to our temple, to our place. You know, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things. All these things that, that the rest of the world runs after. All these things that you worry about. He said, seek first the kingdom of the Lord and his righteousness. righteousness, And all these things will be added. And we say, when? Because I've been waiting, God. All these things will be added. How? Like my neighbor's got it? Because he's got it pretty good. I don't see why I shouldn't have it that way. Do all things, God, do all things include that promotion I know I deserve? That I've worked so hard for? What about that girl or that boy? Do all things include that college admission that I've applied for? Does it include that next rank that I deserve? What about the comfortable retirement that I've been saving for that I so much deserve because I've been working so hard, Jesus? Do you going to give me that? Because that's what I want, right? We have to trust because the things he tells us to do is so counter to that, right? That's not how the world, the world doesn't do kingdom the way Jesus does kingdom. You know, we want our temple. We want our temple. We want our place, even if it's void of the glory of God. Because it's ours. We want to be like the nations. We want to have what our neighbors have. We want to be like our coworkers. We want the prestige that they have. And we trust to the world's ways to get them. We believe, come to church, 
do the things we're supposed to do, but we still trust the world to get what we want. We start relying on money and power and people-pleasing. We still believe, but we're just another American Christian, right? With a form of godliness that has no power. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come for us to be just religious Americans with no glory in our lives, only worldliness. He ushered in a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and he invites us to join into it. It's a kingdom of sacrifice. It's a kingdom of humility. It's a kingdom of patience. It's a kingdom of caring for others. It's a kingdom of generosity, but it's a kingdom that is also of peace and joy and contentment. That's how it works. That's how it works. It doesn't work that way in the world. It works that way in God's kingdom. Now, I was during the hurricane a couple of weeks ago. I was driving. It's Friday morning, right? So it's the midst of the hurricane, the wind and the rain. And I, I'd driven down to the beach to, to have breakfast with some brothers. And, and I was on my way back up 264 to work. And I was, I was going down 264 west. And, and you, a lot of you know the road. And the south military exit comes off like this, right? It's pouring rain, it's windy, the roads are wet. And as I'm about to hit that exit, I notice that there's a car <laughs> down in the pit, right? She'd split the V, right? And down into this marsh, reeds, swamp. Great place to hunt ducks, if not for the highway. Um, <clears throat> but, and I stop, you know, I pull over and I get out and it was a, it was a, it was a lady, she was fine. Um, she was just really worried about getting her car out. Um, she didn't want to ride anywhere. She didn't need my help. She had somebody coming. Thanks, but no thanks. I went on my way. It was very uneventful, but I've been thinking to myself, why don't I stop more often? I mean, I don't know about you, but I pass people on the road every week, changing their tire, you know, got the hood open, the steam coming out. And I'm not trying to make a moral absolute here that if you're a good Christian, you stop every time. That's not what I'm talking about. Maybe we should, but that's a different story. But my question is, why don't I stop? And I can tell you that for me, I don't stop because stopping to do kingdom, stopping to do Jesus, stopping to consider the needs of others disrupts my temple system. I've got a temple system, church. I got to get to work. That's part of my system. It's where I make my money. It's not going to look good on me at work if I stop and do kingdom right now with this person. Or maybe I'm done working. Maybe I'm on my way home and I'm tired. I want to go home and see my family and have dinner. That's, that's Christian-y, isn't it? Go have dinner with your family? You want to go be a Christian at home? I don't have time to do kingdom right now with this stranger that needs help. Maybe I'm on my way to a Bible study. Ooh, I'm on hallowed ground now. I don't have time to do kingdom. I don't have time to do kingdom. I'm going to go teach somebody how to be a Christian even though I'm not going to be a Christian. I have a temple system. You have a temple system. It is void of the glory of God. And when we seek to build and protect our own temple... We enter into kingdoms. We enter into Pharaoh's kingdom. We go back to Egypt. We go back to a dog-eat-dog -dog world. We go back to a me and mine kind.
kind of world. We enter into anxiety. We enter into obsession. And we may not be pressed to commit murder. But we kill ourselves with addictions that we fall into to help comfort us in our anxiety. That's what it's all about. You're living in the world and there's a world ruled by sin and death. If you're going to play there, you have to play by its rules. Jesus calls us into his kingdom. God called the Israelites out of Egypt into his kingdom. Be my kingdom. Walk the way I've told you to walk. If we're not going to trust God and walk in his ways, we're in rebellion. And, and I told you that we were going to talk about this little village of Ephraim. In verse, uh, in verse 54 of our text today, it says, Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. You won't find the village of Ephraim mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. And you won't find it mentioned as a town or a village anywhere in the Old Testament. And scholars believe that the village of Ephraim that we're talking about here was called Ephron in the Old Testament times. Now, if you, if you do a word search in your Bible on Ephron, you will find it regularly mentioned in terms of uh, a mountain. There's a mountain of Ephron. There's a man called Ephron, a Hittite, that uh, is in the book of Genesis. But the town, the village of Ephron is mentioned one time. It's in 2 Chronicles 13. So if you want to turn there, we're going to read something. Keep, just, I just want to, you know, this isn't hugely edifying, but I just want you to know that you know, the Bible doesn't waste words. And when you see something that seems coincidental, there's this town that's mentioned once in the New Testament and once in the Old Testament. You've got to dig that out. You've got to look into that. And in 2 Chronicles 13, just to give you a little bit of a setting, God had established a kingship, first Saul, then David. David was an amazing king. Israel was glorious under David because David trusted God. He was not perfect. He was a sinful man like you and me, but he trusted God. Read his Psalms. He trusted God. He loved his law. Things went well under David, but under Solomon, his son, it started to slip. You know. We think of Solomon as a very wise man, and he was, but he slipped. You know, he went to Egypt to get his horses. He, he fell into idolatry. He, he turned Israel into, he, he set it on a path to becoming just another worldly nation. Right? Under Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the kingdom split. Kingdom split. A man named Jeroboam took the northern ten tribes and rebelled against Jerusalem. Rebelled against God's city. Rebelled against the kingship that was set up by God. And then Rehoboam's son, Abijah, another, the, 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 the great-grandson of David, he goes to war against Jeroboam. And, and in, this, in what we're going to read today, the battle lines are kind of drawn up. And Abijah is, is addressing these, this rebellious group of Israelites. And he says... In verse 4 of chapter 13, 2 Chronicles. And, and just as I read this, keep in mind what we've been studying in John 11. These, these priests, these worldly priests. Abijah says in, in verse 4, Abijah stood on Mount Zimaraim in the hill country of Ephraim and said, 
Jeroboam and all Israel, listen to me. Don't you know that the Lord, the God, of, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants? Jesus was a descendant. Forever in a covenant of salt. Yet Jeroboam, son of Nebat, an official of Solomon, son of David, rebelled against his master. Some worthless scoundrels gathered. How many times have you been called a worthless scoundrel? Some worthless scoundrels gathered around him and opposed Rehoboam. Son of Solomon when he was young and indecisive and not strong enough to resist them. And now you plan to resist the kingdom of the Lord. Just think about these priests that we're reading about. Which is in the hands of David's descendants. You are indeed a vast army and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made to be your gods. But didn't you drive out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and make priests of your own as the people of the other lands do? Whoever, people of the other lands, the other nations, you just want to be like the nations. Whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may become a priest of what are not gods. As for us, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. We still trust. The priests who serve the Lord are sons of Aaron and the Levites assist him every morning and evening. They present burnt offerings and fragrant incense to the Lord. They set out the bread on the ceremonially clean table and light the lamps on the gold lampstand every evening. We are observing the requirements of the Lord our God. But you have forsaken him. God is with us. He is our leader. His priests with their trumpets will sound the battle cry against you. People of Israel... Do not fight against the Lord, the God of your ancestors, for you will not succeed. And then later down in verse 19, it actually mentions that Abijah pursued Jeroboam and captured these villages, one of which is Ephron. There's the connection. I just wanted to, so, just wanted to show you I wasn't making that up. Um, you know, in chapter 12, which is what we'll read next week. And ongoing, we're going to see a very different kind of person in this Lord of ours. He is a, he is a man that marches to his death. He, even though he's the king, he, he humbles himself. He's patient with his betrayer, Judas. Worldly kings aren't patient with their betrayers. They kill their betrayers. He's merciful to his denier. Forgiving to Peter. Right? Worldly kings would never forgive someone who had broken allegiance even for a moment. He demands from his disciples a sacrificial love. And then he demonstrates it himself on the cross. Jesus' kingdom is different. You know, we have to decide are we going to be in that kingdom? Are we going to be in the kingdom of, the, of anxiety, of possession, consumerism, exploitation, me and mine? Which one's it going to be? You know, God overcame Egypt in the Exodus. And in John 16, verse 33, Jesus tells the disciples, I've told you these things. I've told you how to live in the kingdom. I've told you how to be different. I've told you how to be countercultural so that you can have peace. I've told you these things so that you can have peace. It says, in the world, there's trouble. But I have overcome the world. Just like I overcame Egypt, I have overcome the world. We can't go back. 
Do we want to live in the kingdom? Do we want to be people that baffle our neighbors and coworkers? And they're like, why do you do that? Why do you give away your stuff? Why are you humble and patient when your coworkers cuss you out? That's not how we do it in the world. You've got to defend yourself. You've got to baffle people with our kingdom ways. You know, the kingdom has been given to us. And the glory of God has been revealed to us and made available to us. And the way in which we do kingdom has been explained to us. Let us walk in this way, church. And let us not go back to Egypt. God be the glory.